welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Climate change and climate science have been the subject of a great deal of discussion and political controversy here in the United States. As Justice Samuel Alito wrote in a recent U.S. Supreme Court opinion, and I quote, politicians, journalists, academics, and ordinary Americans discuss and debate various aspects of climate change daily. Its causes, extent, urgency, consequences, and the appropriate policies for addressing it, close quote. And while polling data indicates that a growing majority of Americans now believe that the climate uh, is in fact changing, um, and also believe that that change is human caused, or at least largely human caused, um, and also indicates that uh, while a majority are very worried about the, uh, the impacts of climate change, that climate skepticism or, or doubts about the basics of climate science is not uncommon. In this era of information and disinformation, wouldn't it be great if we had a vehicle for separating fact from fiction in an important area like this? A mechanism for crunching truth that could weigh the evidence and expert opinion about an important question like climate science and, and shine a light on the probative and most compelling facts uh, to point towards a prevailing view of the science. Maybe if we had such a mechanism, then uh, the findings emerging from that mechanism could be used to overcome disinformation or informational distortions and allow for better informed public and political views. The premise behind the new report that we'll be discussing today is that we already have a mechanism for crunching truth, and that mechanism is the judicial system. And the courts have for a number of years now been working in a fairly detailed way with climate science. This survey project and the report that emerged from it uh, came from some questioning at the Environmental Law Institute in the wake of Federal District Court Judge William Alsop's 2018 decision in the City of Oakland case. Now, advocates for aggressive climate action were naturally disappointed with Judge Alsop's dismissal of the case on political question grounds. But what caught our attention was the fact that Judge Alsop, en route to rendering his decision, held a hearing on climate science and that the judge, while essentially deferring to the representative branches of government for the necessary response, seemed quite clear on the integrity of basic climate science and the imperative for action to which it pointed. We began to wonder whether Judge Alsop's views were reflective of a broader trend in the judiciary. So with financial and moral support of the Institute's Board of Directors, we commissioned this study and report. As we will discuss, 
This report finds that courts are indeed treating as valid and authoritative the science that says that climate is warming, that human activity is driving the observed and anticipated changes, and that those changes will have a variety of adverse impacts in the United States and globally. In other words, there appears to have emerged a fairly vast judicial agreement on the causes, extent, urgency, and consequences of climate change. I'm Scott Fulton, president of the Environmental Law Institute, and joining me here today on the special Earth Day episode of People, Places, and Planet podcast is Dr. Maria Banda, who is the lead author of this report, which is available on our website at www.eli.org. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Scott. Delighted to be here. So, uh, Maria, we'll just uh, dive right into this. Um, How would you summarize the conclusions in the report regarding the degree of consensus um, among courts around the basic questions of climate science? Well, first, as you have already alluded to, Scott, there is a vast um, judicial consensus around climate science. Both U.S. courts and foreign courts um, would a remarkable degree of consistency um, are expressly accepting um, uh, the basic propositions of climate science. And what what I mean by that is, A, that the climate has been warming, um, B, that a range of human activities, including combustion of fossil fuels, is driving these changes, and C, that these changes will result in a number of um, negative impacts. And so that basic causal chain is um, established uh, from the court's pronouncements. Uh, Courts have been describing evidence of climate change as compelling, substantial, um, copious, and overwhelming. Um, And they have also been discussing the range of dangers that climate change poses in terms of imminence and gravity uh, of real um, and immediate risks. Um, Second, as the report finds, um, the consensus is not limited to one type of court proceeding or country. Now, the report reviews um, a range of proceedings from um, nuisance claims, for example, filed by the cities of San Francisco and Oakland, constitutional claims um, raised, for example, by the youth plaintiffs in Juliana, as well as administrative law proceedings. And it finds that across these different disputes, um, courts have been accepting basic climate science, and that holds true across both state and federal courts in the United States, and also across U.S. and international courts. Um, uh, thirdly, as the report also shows, judicial engagement with climate science, even with very complex and technical issues, has been a very nuanced and thoughtful. Um, courts have, for example, reviewed climate impacts on California's water supply, species extinction risks on emissions accounting. Um, And they have been uh, very good uh, at that review. And then finally, um, the parties, uh, the litigants themselves, appear to accept uh, basic climate science. And though this may be surprising if you look at the tenor of the public debate, climate litigation at the end of the day is not really about climate change or climate science anymore. It's um, truly about the difficult legal and political issues um, of who is responsible for what, who should pay, or who has standing to sue. 
Thank you, Maria. Um, were there any trends that uh, stood out for you, trends here in the U.S. judicial system that you found particularly noteworthy? There, there will be two particularly noteworthy uh, trends. The first one is um, there is a major shift, um, I would say, since the early climate lawsuits where climate skepticism was still relatively common in U.S. courts. And you see some of that skepticism come through in the proceedings, for example, in Massachusetts, the EPA. Uh, but since the court's seminal ruling in 2007, um, and in particular in the period reviewed by this report, which is the last five years, what you find is that the public controversy around climate science is simply no longer present um, in the courts. Um, there has been quite a shift in the tone. And so, as an example, in the Rocky Mountain uh, proceedings before the Ninth Circuit, the court went from being relatively agnostic about climate science in 2013 to um, accepting it um, six years later when it said that it seems clear beyond dispute that climate change poses um, one of the most difficult challenges facing humanity. Um, you also see it in the pronouncements of, for example, a Texas District Court in a recent ERISA proceeding where the court says that it would be an affront to scientists, academics, and government bodies, not to mention uh, the people who are already experiencing climate impacts. Uh, to pretend that environmental risks about climate change were unknown um, in 2015 when the company was releasing its own information. Um, so this, this is quite a noteworthy shift, and there are a number of different ways um, that um, we can understand it, um, from you know, starting from the changes in climate science itself to um, the duties that council have to present evidence and also how litigants themselves may exercise caution in framing um, arguments in court. And you see some of that dynamic play out in Juliana, uh, where industry inter interveners, for example, chose to withdraw from the proceeding partly because they could not arrive at a joint position on climate science. And finally, perhaps most importantly, uh, it seems that U.S. federal agencies such as NASA, uh, NOAA, and EPA, um, in carrying out their statutory duties, have generated a vast amount of climate data, uh, which is now underpinning uh, a lot of the court's analysis. And this is what makes the United States quite unique compared to many other jurisdictions. It's a status really as a science superpower. And that evidence has in turn um, served to limit the scope of plausible arguments that litigants, including federal defendants, could uh, raise in court. Um, and that may be why we're seeing this narrowing of disputes away from the factual issues around climate science to um, uh, legal issues. Now, the other trend um, in parallel to this one uh, worth noting is that the judicial consensus on climate science in the United States has not translated into judicial intervention. Uh, courts are exercising restraint and are um, frequently deferring to the representative branches of government um, to devise solutions um, to the climate challenge. Maria, the, the report notes, uh, as I think you've just observed, that while the courts generally appear to accept climate science, um, in a, in a, a way that um, reflects a fair degree of, uh, of consensus, 
Many climate change cases that we hear about in the news are ultimately dismissed by the courts. Can you can you explain this um, um, this contrast between um, this acceptance of climate science, but uh, uh, the judicial reticence reflected by, by dismissal? Right, and it's actually a trend that um, we see both um, in U.S. and in foreign courts, uh, but. First, before before I get to that, we might want to distinguish between um, the very large numbers, say, of administrative law cases uh, proceeding under NEPA, the APA, or the Clean Air Act, uh, which have frequently been successful from a climate perspective, um, from some of these higher profile constitutional or civil claims, like Juliana or City of Oakland, which have not. And in the former, um, where courts are dealing with some of the more typical um, administrative law questions, they're treating climate science and the issues so climate uh, change just they would um, any other scientific field. Now, the second set of cases um, often involve new legal theories or challenging threshold issues such as um, standing. And so if you take for example, the nuisance suits um, filed by cities and local governments against energy companies across the U.S., you see some of those um, preliminary uh, legal questions play out. Um, first, courts are grappling with uh, jurisdictional issues. Uh, what is even the right form to hear these claims, state or federal courts, and they're reaching a variety of conclusions on that question. Um, second, once a court assumes jurisdiction over the claim, it may decide to state's hand in favor of the political branches, as Judge uh, Alsop had done in the city of Oakland case. Um, Third, if you can imagine the cases clearing these preliminary obstacles, there are still other hurdles, including um, fault and attribution and causation, um, which brings us to the problem of Article 3 standing, which, as this audience surely knows, um, has often acted as a barrier to environmental claims and climate change is no, no exception. Um, uh, plaintiffs need to establish uh, um, uh, that there is a concrete particularized injury, um, that there is causation uh, by the challenge conduct, and that there is redressability. And that may be difficult um, to meet. So um, take the particularity requirement. If everyone is affected in some way by climate change, then plaintiffs may have trouble demonstrating that they're particularly affected. And so we see that, for example, in the uh, district court's ruling in Clean Air uh, Council in Pennsylvania, echoing Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in Massachusetts VEPA. We also see that in some of the foreign proceedings, but not, uh, for example, in Juliana or in, um, or in the Dutch courts. Um, the same is true of uh, causation and redressability. And so the dispute over Article 3 standing, for example, is very much alive and well in the climate cases. And those are just some of the legal barriers. Um, there are obviously many others, including uh, preemption, political question. I see. Are there areas where the courts continue to struggle with uh, questions of scientific uncertainty in the climate arena? There are. And um, as the U.S. National Climate Assessment, uh, which is the report produced by 13 different federal agencies, says there is inherent uncertainty in climate science, um, but there is also high confidence about a number of issues, um, including that human activities are changing the climate in unprecedented ways. And so on some of those basic issues that we discussed at the beginning, um, courts, 
are obviously having no difficulty making rendering decisions. Um, where courts struggle with uncertainty is uh, twofold. Um, one is long-term projections and the other is localized impacts. And so, for example, um, the parties, both parties may be fairly certain that climate change will negatively impact the Pacific walrus, but it may be less clear exactly what those effects are going to be in or after 2060. Will there be a steady species decline or will there be a sharp die-off um, if we cross some yet-to-be-determined tipping point? Um, what will be the degree of sea level rise? Um, what will be the uh, level of emissions at that point in time anyway? So these kinds of questions involve complex modeling and assumptions that are often uh, hotly disputed by the parties. And in areas such as these, courts um, often defer to agency expertise um, so long as it's supported by best scientific data. Now, I should say climate science is rapidly evolving and um, these areas of scientific uncertainty have been shrinking. Um, and so the fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment, for example, summarizes some of the key scientific advances um, uh, since the last report, which it describes as significant. And in areas of detection and attribution, for example, um, uh, there have been advances in uh, tying uh, human influence for individual climate events. Um, um, the uh, projections of um, uh, climate change on localized impacts are also increasing. And this may, again, feed back into how courts uh, look at this information and into judicial pronouncements. And so what was true in 2015 may no longer be true in 2020. One of the great things about this report is not only its um, comprehensive survey of uh, jurisprudence in the United States, looking at uh, how climate science has been um, being expressed by judges, um, but also its uh, view of comparative experience and comparative outcomes internationally. So, so recognizing that, um, in a sense, uh, science is the the ultimate international language. Uh, how does the U.S. judicial experience in this area compare with the experience in other countries? Well, yes, climate science may indeed be the uh, lingua franca in these cases, and there are numerous similarities. Um, so um, obviously the review of, I should say, of um, foreign jurisprudence is not uh, exhaustive. It's much less comprehensive um, than uh, of the U.S. And we'll look at about a dozen different countries. But what we see is that foreign courts are engaging with climate science um, in many of the same types of disputes, constitutional claims, administrative law proceedings, civil litigation, as in the United States. They're reaching many of the same factual conclusions about the causes, um, extent, urgency, and consequences of climate change. They are basing their analysis on um, the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, as well as U.S. government research, um, such as NASA's climate research. Um, we see that, as in the United States, litigants themselves are accepting basic climate science before the courts. And so, in this sense, the judicial consensus on climate science truly does descend borders. Um, and in fact, so much so that foreign courts often uh, look to what their other counterparts in the United States and elsewhere are doing. Um, they basically survey some of these developments and refer to them in the pronouncements. But now there are also some obvious differences. Uh, in particular, 
foreign courts appear to have gone further in making detailed findings about climate science and discussing what they consider to be a safe temperature rise. And that may be also obviously a function of their particular um, constitutional or statutory context. And so courts, for example, in Ireland, and the Netherlands and Australia have all discussed this notion that there is a limited carbon budget that is left and which implies phasing out the use of fossil fuels or reducing emissions by 2050 um, based on um, uh, the uh, consensus among climate sciences, the scientists as reflected in the IPCC reports. And um, the conclusion, for example, that the temperature rise must not exceed 1.5 degrees has implications for the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and for the level of emissions reductions required to prevent what courts uh, have called dangerous climate change. And based on those findings, some foreign courts have gone quite far, um, again, speaking from a U.S. perspective, in ordering their governments to take a wide range of measures to reduce emissions. Now, obviously, when it comes to legal conclusions and the deference to the political branches, there is a wide, depending on the national context, and in some cases, courts have been issuing very ambitious orders, um, uh, directing the political branches to act, including in Colombia and Pakistan and India. Um, in others, they have exercised greater uh, restraint, more similar to the United States. Last question for you, Maria. I, I had mentioned at the beginning um, this, um, this question of what judicial pronouncements in this area can or should mean to the public debate about climate change. So how might judicial consensus on climate change inform public understanding of or debate about climate science here in the United States? Well, that is a very important question, given this um, sizable disconnect that exists uh, between the public debate or public understanding about climate science and the very strong judicial consensus on climate science. Um, so there are two ways to think about the potential role. The first is um, the judiciary obviously occupies a unique role in a democratic society and like no other institution, it can help separate truth from fiction. And so it is not surprising that courts are among the most trusted and respected institutions by the public. Now, obviously, courts are not in the business of uh, providing direct public education, but simply a greater understanding of judicial pronouncements and climate science could be helpful in uh, reducing some of the noise that exists in the public debate. Um, for example, it could help clarify that there is a scientific consensus around key issues, that courts have been accepting this consensus as authoritative, and that litigants and the federal government itself actually subscribe to that consensus. And that in itself could help move um, the public understanding um, closer to the judicial understanding. And as you've mentioned at the beginning, um, lead to better informed views. Um, and secondly, and let's face it, courts um, are clearly alarmed by the evidence that is before them. They may be dismissing various lawsuits, but that's because their hands are often constitutionally tied and their ability to offer redress is limited. So they're looking to the political branches to act and a greater understanding of the court's acceptance of the basic climate facts 
could potentially um, result, result in greater leadership accountability um, and spur the political branches to provide those very solutions that the, ho- that the courts are waiting for. Okay, thank you very much, Maria. That was terrific. Uh, again, uh, we've been talking about a new report entitled Climate Science in the Courts, a review of U.S. and international pronouncements. And it's been our pleasure to have with us today, Dr. Maria Banda, who's the lead author of this report. And thank you so very much, Maria. Thank you, Scott. And thank you all for listening to People, Places, Planet podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.